0: Saturday, 6th of June, Richard Thomas taught two sessions at Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions where Richard looks at temple theology. Richard is the senior pastor of Hope Church Worcester and also leads Worcester School of Theology. Let's take a listen to the session. So, in this uh, session, we are looking at uh, what's been called temple theology, which is uh, really about the presence of God. Obviously, uh, what, what's a temple? it's it's a place where you go to meet God or a place where God meets with people so that's our working definition and of course it was always God's plan to live amongst his people to both receive their worship to have friendship with them to bless them with his presence and and that's a recurring theme in scripture so in this uh, section of the morning we're looking at that as a theme going through the Bible, as as a thread, and obviously we'll begin at the beginning in Genesis and the first three uh, chapters. Wow. Uh, there's a book by a, a guy called G.K. Beale, uh, which um, called the Temple and the Church's Mission, and he begins in Eden, and really helpfully says Eden was like a temple. Eden was the first place where God interacted excuse me, need a throat sleep, uh, interacted with humanity. Of course, humanity is made in the image of God as God breathes uh, life into mankind, Genesis 1, 26 and 28. And really in the creation uh, story of the days, we see that God forms and then fills. So uh, uh, day one, God forms light and darkness. And then it's recorded in day four, he fills that with specific lights, with stars, with moon, with sun. And day two, he creates uh, the, uh, the land and the sky and the sea. And then he fills that on day uh, five with birds uh, and with animals and fish. And then there's the earth uh, and uh, animals, including the creation of mankind. And then with mankind, He breathes life into them and man becomes a living soul filled with the breath of God himself in order to know God. So creation and particularly Eden are seen as the place where God interacts specifically and specially with humanity. Humanity is made in the image of God, made to react and to relate to God and with the breath of God within himself or herself. And mankind is to is to serve in the garden, rather like priests serve. In fact, the same language used in Genesis is used in Numbers of of uh, to till the land, to keep the land. They're Hebrew words, and, and they're used exactly duplicated in terms of the work of priests in the temple. So we do this work, yes, but this work isn't onerous. It's worship of God. So it's temple kind of language. And of course, famously, God came and met with Adam and Eve, walking in the cool of the day. Middle Eastern language for for early evening when the heat is finished. So walking and fellowshipping together. It's a lovely image of the desire and the heart of God to fellowship with us. And again, the same language is later used in Leviticus of of God's desire to be there in the tabernacle to walk among you, I will walk among you. Uh, I'll go from place to place with a tent as my uh, dwelling. But it's similar language. So God's plan in the uh, in Genesis in the uh, those first few chapters is to fellowship with men and women who serve Him as like priests in a temple, who worship Him both by fellowshipping with Him in the evening. But by serving him in the garden, uh, and to fill the earth with people who have that experience. So when he says, uh, "Fill the earth, increase and multiply," it's not just go and have babies. It's go and have babies and produce families who fill the earth with people who also walk with me and know my presence. And that's the big picture of the Bible. That's that's the destiny. Of God's people, to be a people that fill the earth and know God. That's the ultra big picture that you and I are part of. Now, of course, uh, the fall actually resulted in an in a ejection from God's presence, but also the promise that one day a seed, singular, of woman would crush Satan's head and make that relationship possible again. And there's an interesting detail, which we'll see repeated in, in temple uh, construction, or that Genesis 3.24, it says, a cherubim was put there to guard against re-entry, lest man should get back and get into the garden again. There, were, there was a banishment, there was a protection, lest they eat from the tree of life. So that's the kind of picture. Uh, Eden is the ideal temple pre men and women fellowshipping with God, knowing him supposed to fill the earth with people who also knew the presence of God now of course we've gone on multiplying that's the only command we've probably managed to keep well but humanity from now on it says they began to call upon the name of the Lord Genesis 426 in other words they still spoke to him they retained a bit of knowledge of him but they're now removed from him they're distant from him things were not as they were and we could spend a great deal of time looking at every encounter in the old testament we don't have the time for that this morning so just to highlight a few of them moses at the burning bush was a pres- an encounter with the presence of god you remember as he has he drew aside to look at this strange sight of a, a bush that was burning but it wasn't being consumed. There was no crackling up, no breaking down of the wood. It was just a light. And he becomes aware and he's reminded, hey, this is holy ground. And he becomes frightened. How awesome is this sight? Now, we live in days where, you know, a mildly good burger is called awesome. It isn't, it's a good burger. Uh, But awesome is is fear-inducing, awe-inducing, wonder-inducing. Why? because God's presence is there and he's he's told as a sign of his of his reverent awe, he should take his shoes off Jacob had a similar response incidentally when he realizes at the place he later called uh, he named Bethel that, that where he sees the ladder going up and down and angels ascending to heaven and, and back down God was in this place and I didn't know it he's in awe of God later on uh, Moses is promised that the presence of God will go with him when he's reluctant to go and speak to Pharaoh that my presence will go with you Uh, and the sign of God's presence would be that that he and the people of God will worship at this mountain at Sinai and of course that's exactly what happened on the mountain where uh, Moses met with God Uh, they corporately come and experience something of the presence of God at Sinai, and the place shook. God visited the place in fire and smoke, and if an animal touched the mountain, it had to be killed. There's an awesome awareness of the holy presence of God. And the central issue in Israel becomes how can God dwell amongst the people who fail him? Will God continue to be present? With us and uh, you remember the golden calf incident uh, where the people while Moses was up the temple a a golden calf we've seen those before uh, a golden calf is constructed and uh, the people uh, fall into pagan worship Uh, God judges them and Moses has this intercession this long intercession Um, it, it blocked me out of the book of life have mercy on them uh, and, and and please come with us. Uh, he, he doesn't even want an angel. Most of us would be satisfied with a dirty great angel in our meetings. But he says, no, unless you go with us, we don't want to go anywhere. And then God promises, my presence will go with you. And his presence was manifested in those days in a pillar of fire uh, at night and a pillar of smoke in the day. And provision was made through complex rules and regulations in the covenant are a system of the tabernacle and sacrifices to enable a people that are sometimes unclean to function with God in the midst he's among them he said I'll go with you but he's holy he's separate he's most holy and so there's this this complicated arrangement of things that are clean things that are unclean things that have to be made holy and then the most holy place where God who is the holy of holiest is going to dwell among them and because of his presence amongst his people a huge amount things that seem confusing to us when we read them a huge amount of quite hard to read regulations are put in place about what's clean or unclean ceremonially but those things reflect a longing for God to be amongst his people but also his holiness necessitating him being separated from them and them having to separate themselves to him in order to be his people and be able to approach him in worship. So that's a big summation of, of a large bit of complicated scripture. But it centers on the tabernacle, the tent of God, the tent of meeting. And the word tabernacle was, was really meant the place of divine dwelling, the place where God could be met. And if you read in the start of Numbers, all the tribes and their wilderness journeys were orientated around and camped to the north, the south, the east and the west of the tabernacle. In other words, the people of God should centre themselves around the presence of God. Now, I come from a very evangelical background and I love what i've learned of from god's word i love the bible i loved it before i was saved even i love it more now but but there's a temptation sometimes to orient ourselves around god's word which is good but sometimes even to under emphasize the presence of god they orientated themselves around the presence of god they set off when he set off they stopped when he stopped it's a great uh picture, a visual aid of how we should live our lives. And that taught them something about the presence of God. Sometimes the tabernacle was manifestly filled with him. For example, Exodus 40 records the cloud cloud of God's presence, what some people call the Shekinah glory, entered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tent. And the word glory in Hebrew is kavod, K-O-V-O-D, or although it's pronounced T-H, kavod. It was the glory of the Lord. It means the weight of God's presence, like a physical weight filled the tent, his manifold presence. And Moses could not enter because the cloud had settled upon it and his glory filled the temple. That's a wonderful thing. It's both scary and fills you with longing, both at the same time. Um, And it was made to an exacting pattern because, you know, it's a huge thing for a holy God to live amongst an impure people. And it still is. God has not changed. He's not mellowed with age. It's still a huge thing that God should presence himself with his people. The tabernacle was constructed with zones, if you like, of increasing holiness, leading to the holy of holies where the presence of God was promised, resting. And it was separated from the rest of the tent by a very thick curtain, which you remember we talked about the cherubim, the curtain was embroidered with cherubim. It's an echo of the garden of Eden. It's a reminder, hey, treat me with care. You cannot come in except through sacrifices. Don't be casual about the presence of God. And there were exacting requirements too about the equipment, the special priestly clothes, a unique oil recipe for the priest to put on, incense oil to burn, all specifically designed and devoted to God in reverence for his presence. Properly awesome. Awesome properly so-called. And within the tabernacle was the Ark of God, overarched by two carved winged cherubim called the mercy seat, the place where God promised to dwell. But although God was amongst his people, they can't get too close. Don't touch was the rule of the day. Don't go too near. And approach was only through priestly sacrifice to them. So God is amongst them, but simultaneously distant. He's amongst them as a people. He's their people He walks amongst them. But at the same time, they're constantly reminded you can't get too close. His holiness is burning. And occasionally through the Old Testament, his anger uh, is kind of expressed and, and breaks out against those who treat his presence casually. And then on the day of atonement, the high priest alone was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies just once each year on that day. Atonement Obviously, if you've done the New Testament year or you will do the New Testament year, you'll have a big focus on that for one of the sessions. But it means to make that which is separate one again and to take away that which stops that relationship coming into being. So atonement was symbolized first by the high priest making sacrifice for his own sins and then making sacrifice for the people's sins before he's able to enter. And that's echoed in the language of Hebrews, how Jesus once and for all time has made a sacrifice for sins. Now he appears. He's in the presence of God representing us. So when God looks on us, he sees the high priest who's made sacrifice for our sins and we are able to enter into his presence through Christ. But it's the presence of God that makes anything, any ground, any tent, holy. And the aim of all these rules and regulations and ceremonies is I will walk amongst you and I'll be your God. At the end of the period of, uh, of uh, judges, before the time of the kings, it, it, it describes a time of uh, decline in devotion. We, we've looked at it already in Samuel, how uh, the ark was lost. The ark which can contain the rod of Aaron that budded, representing leadership. The jar of manna, which represented God's provision. The ten Commandments, representing God's guidance and leadership. And all of which symbolizes his presence. Was treated as a kind of lucky charm to guarantee victory. But the presence of God can't be manipulated. And so uh, we've already told the story how on the battlefield it was lost to the Philistines. And uh, the pregnant wife of the high priest Phineas was told the news. She gave birth and dies in giving birth, and named her son Ichabod, which meant no glory. The glory of God, the presence of God, has departed. Not a great name to live with, really. I would, uh, if you're expecting, rule that name out right now. And uh, then we've told the story of. Uh, of of Dagon and so on and so forth and the presence of God the Philistines can't live with the presence of God they start suffering tumours and they have to return the ark uh, to uh, the people of God because you know God's presence is awesome it's terrible it's wonderful it's glorious it's fantastic it's scary as well and so it is with the presence of God i just I just wonder David later brought the ark to the um, to his new capital in Jerusalem, uh, not without cost. Do you remember they were careless about how they were transporting the ark instead of God had said this it should be carried in this way and that way. They shoved it on a cart, and Uzzah tried to steady it and lost his life it 's an awesome thing to be handling the presence of God, and finally, the presence of God is brought back uh, to Jerusalem, they try again, it's carried reverently with sacrifices every few steps, and with David dancing before the ark of God, worshipping God wholeheartedly and energetically. It's a great story, I just, I just wonder if it's worth pausing and just discussing together, I know we live in New Testament days, we have access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, entirely by his grace, but I just wonder if it's worth stopping and saying, Do we treat the presence of God casually? And how do we as individuals and churches honor the presence of God? So just for for, uh, 10 minutes, why don't we just stop and say, how, how do we honor the presence of God in our lives? There'll be different things for different people, but how do we personally honor the presence of God in our lives? Are we too casual? we have access but how do we honor the fact that he's promised to be with us by his spirit how do we do that corporately and individually so let's just have a little pause and go to breakout rooms and just talk about how we honor the presence of God in our day in our life, and in our churches okay lovely so someone asked the question was I saying that the whole world is the temple of gods and I think that it's a slightly we comp- we'll, we'll Continue when we get to the end of the story, we'll see that. I'm saying Eden was created as a temple, the earth was created uh, and uh, to be filled with God's presence and will be again. Actually, Habakkuk and books like that say uh, the earth will be filled with the glory of God, uh, His weight, weighty presence, as the waters cover the sea. But obviously, at the fall, things went awry, so the earth is still the Lord's and everything in it, according to. The book of Psalms so it's still owned by God but obviously we now have evil in the world we have a mixture uh, uh, as well but one day the earth and the world will be again the temple of, of God so I'm jumping ahead to the end of the at the end of this session to um, to revelations where it says there'll be no temple because God's presence will fill the earth again so the earth was made to be the temple of God Now it's some right mixture and mess, as we know. We live with the good and the bad of that, uh, and we'll we'll fill in that gap. And then at the end, the the world will be again filled with the presence of God, and all evil will be expelled. So uh, the world was made to be the temple of God. It's a mixture now, but it will again be filled with the presence of God. But I'm jumping ahead. As, I, as is a habit so, um, so we were at David and him bringing the presence of God represented by, um, by the ark into uh, Jerusalem again and, and David we don't, don't often think about it but David transformed worship until the time of David it had been largely sacrificial people praying uh, alongside those sacrifices at in the presence of God very often Uh, But David transformed worship corporately, and we have that in our day recorded in the book of Psalms, many of which were used in temple worship. But if you read Chronicles, he he introduced massive choirs and instrumental worship and was a guy who loved the presence of God. One day in your courts. He loved the presence of God. Great example. I don't know if you love the presence of God, but one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, written by David, not Matt Redmond. But but it's great to enjoy the presence of God. He talked about Jerusalem. He said there's a river that makes glad the holy place, Jerusalem and the temple, but actually Jerusalem has no river. There's no river going through. There's a spring and Hezekiah built his conduit to bring the water. He's talking about the presence of God. And I, I wish I'd had more time in preparation to look through Psalms about the presence of God because there's a lot in there but but David planned this huge program to honor who God was and his presence with them he included for example four thousand singers and musicians and a group of people to prophesy accompanied by harps so I don't know uh, what size church you come from but it's just a thought <laughs> a group of a small group dedicating to prophesying with harps. there you go a bit of cr- a creative left field suggestion uh, but david's worship is a massive reformation of worship and enjoyment of the presence of god solomon's temple is the ark is built yeah, brought into the temple on completion with appropriate worship He is good his love endures forever and similar to the opening of the um the the tabernacle, the the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud. The priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So they were overwhelmed by the presence of God. And people um, sometimes argue about this kind of thing. Surely God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. And he is. There is no the Psalm, Psalm one three nine. Where can I go? Where can I flee from Your presence? If I got up early, got a caught Concord, went over to America, got up before the day was born, I'd find God there. Even if I made my bed, bed bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, even there, Your presence there. I can't get away from Your presence. You're behind me. You're before me. You're everywhere. So yes, that's true. God is everywhere can't escape from him he is omnipresent but he is sometimes manifestly present and 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 that's recorded in scripture these times where the the priests can't just can't function they're overwhelmed by the observable felt presence of god his powerfully manifested presence so after a dedicatory prayer of the temple fire from heaven Onto the sacrifice, and the glory of God filled the temple, so you get you get both he is everywhere, but sometimes he is manifestly or powerfully showing his presence to us, so we can reckon on him being with us, but you long for times where he shows his presence uh, again, two chronicles three, you get the same similar curtain designed in the tabernacle echoing Eden again where the cherubim is there saying hey you can't come in here my presence is too holy and the people of God seeing the presence of God knelt on the ground with their faces to the fore worshipping and giving God's for his weighty presence with them it's a wonderful picture and I thank God for such times when we're worshipping him and He's always with us. He's always worthy to be worshipped. But praise God for those times when we, we, perhaps it's more our sensitivity to him. As sometimes he increases his presence and everyone is made aware, whether they want it or not, that he is amongst us. He's with us. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So that's temple worship. And then sadly, you get to the time, the time we've just covered in, in, in the book of Kings. Uh, and, and onwards where Ezekiel for example he he he's he it's about that time when they're going to be exiled and, and there's sun worship actual sun worship within the temple it's recorded in Ezekiel chapter 10 Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple which after all is just a building God manifests his presence because of the ark there but it's just a building and God uh, he sees a symbol of God leaving the nation. And where, where are we without the presence of God? We're nothing, except his presence goes with us, cried Moses. Don't, we don't want to go anywhere. So Israel has profaned the temple. Profaning is the opposite of being made holy. <laughs> you know, we have to separate ourselves to God and his purposes. We profane the temple when we do the opposite. And so God leaves And and, uh, Ezekiel sees this prophetically. It's a wacky book, Ezekiel. Not sure he'd pass any of our membership courses, but he's a great guy. And uh, in 586, that temple is then BC. That temple is then uh, destroyed. But later on in the book of Ezekiel, he has a vision of a new temple. A new temple and the glory of God again Amongst his people. In fact, it covers. I mean, it's it's a strange passage. You have to read it all in one go because you can get bogged down in the details. But Ezekiel chapter forty, all the way through to chapter forty-eight, eight long chapters of this temple that he sees, and there's measurements and there's all sorts of, of detail. And the language echoes Eden. It echoes the first chapters of the Bible. There are there are rivers symbolic of the presence of God flowing out from the altar which is the presence of God this this river which gets deeper the further it goes out there's all sorts of parallels we can make with mission that the presence of God gets deeper as we go out into that area which is unfruitful and cursed and barren it's it's actually imagery that's taken up again in revelation where you get that the river of God going out from the 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 trees by the side of it, which are for the healing of the nation. And as the river flows out, as he sees this in his vision, as it flies out into dead land, the land gets healed. The land becomes fruitful and abundant. Where the river flows from the presence of God, from the temple and the altar, everything will live. So it's a great picture of a new temple being established and life flowing as it flows out into the nation and the nation. So this new temple, which he he sees, is going to surpass the old one. And he says, I'll put my sanctuary, my holy place amongst them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people and the nations will know. So it's a glorious picture of a restored temple and the presence of god being in the temple yes but flowing out to the nation and the nations beyond them and getting deeper and deeper as it flows out it's a great picture really exciting picture it's actually a picture that's quoted by stephen you remember stephen uh, the first martyr in acts chapter seven he he quotes it I, uh, he quotes actually isaiah isaiah again a similar prophet Uh, saw a temple with all nations uh, streaming to it. Isaiah 2, verse 1 to 5. Also, the prophet Micah says similar thing. These prophets around that time of the decline and fall of Israel, and then its restoration, prophesying its restoration, but prophesying more than its restoration. He sees a temple, not just for Israel, but all nations coming into the temple. And Stephen quotes that, he quotes Isaiah saying, uh, Isaiah saying, God can never actually be finally contained in a temple made by human hands. That's Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. And so there's this, yet yeah, there's a physical temple, but there's that acknowledgement that in the end, God can't be contained in a, in a building. The whole earth is his, and the temple experience is to be for all nations. So throughout scripture we get this promise that this temple and God's glory and praise for God is going to be throughout the whole earth. So the verse I referred to at the beginning is Habakkuk 2 verse 14, but you get it in Psalms and Numbers as well, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's what we're part of Friends, that's, that's part of our mission. Our, our, our little outreach on a wet Tuesday night in February is part of that. Our next church plant, feeble though it seems, is part of establishing a people who know his presence throughout the whole earth. And, and it helps us to see the bigger picture, doesn't it? Because I don't know about you, but February's my worst month, and a wet February evening turning out is <laughs> the pits. But actually, that's part of this. We are part of a people who know his presence that will multiply. And the further we go out in mission, even into barren, hard lands, the further we go out, the deeper his presence is promised. That's, that's, that's what we're part of. Anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting into preaching mode. Sorry. Can't help myself. So, so then you get the return of people from exile that they come back and you you get um, uh, the Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, Ezra kind of books where they're coming back and they're struggling to rebuild a city and they're struggling to rebuild a temple. And they're really weeping over it. And there's triumph in that because they're allowed by the king of Persia to come back. Uh, The king of Persia, Cyrus, not a believer, but he's called my servant. That's God's perspective. Even pagan kings can be used by God, and he sends them back, and he specifically uh, gives them permission and orders them to rebuild and restore worship to the true God, the God of Israel. He's not a believer, but he wants them to be able to worship their God. He's a tolerant king, Uh, but as they do that, and it's a real struggle to get it built, Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther, but as they see that in the midst of great celebrations, the people that saw the first one are actually weeping, Partly for joy, but partly because it's just not as good. (laughs) It's it's a it's a great accomplishment. Temple worship is restored, but it's it's not like the first one. Although it's and interestingly, although it's wonderful, there's no record of God ever manifesting his presence in the way you get in the first temple and in the way you get in the tabernacle. They don't really reflect the majesty of those prophetic. Um, expectations, if you like. So it's that, in all, all nations streaming to it. It's in the presence of God going out from it to the nations. And, and, and people say, well, is this really what Ezekiel was seeing? Is this really the full fulfillment of that? Was this what Isaiah and Habakkuk were really talking about? Surely there must be more than this. You know, I don't know if you've ever, you have that feeling sometimes. This is great. This is wonderful, but there must be more than this, and the truth is, there is this isn 't the the nation 's flooding back. this is not the full thing it's this part of it it 's exciting, but it 's not exciting enough to fulfill those prophetic expectations and and, uh, and that 's what they live with really until the coming of jesus and um, we, we don 't always appreciate when we read the gospels that Jesus is God with us you know until now if you wanted to meet with God where did you go when well, you went to Jerusalem or before that you went you went to the tabernacle that's the place where you meet with God and it's complicated you have to bring a perfect lamb you have to make sacrifices and then once a year the priest does this and that and that's the whole thing but when Jesus comes if you want to meet with God where do you go you get to a person That's, we don't often see it in that kind of temple way, but the presence of God was now in the form of a person. You didn't need to go to the temple. You could meet Jesus. You could cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, and he would come. You could get let down through the roof into his presence, and he would say, hey, I forgive you your sins. So Jesus is the presence of God on earth. So when John writes his uh, gospel, he says, Hey, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And and the word he uses for dwelt is literally he tabernacled. It's a temple word. Hey, the tabernacle of God. And we've seen his glory. That's a temple word again. This is the presence of God, the temple of God on earth amongst us. And there's a there's a wonder in that. So in his lifetime, Jesus was the temple he's the presence of god in flesh dwelling amongst us as one of us and when you read the gospels you you actually if you carefully read them you see claims which the pharisees really understood which we rush over because we're 20th century people but he 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 makes claims implying that he saw himself as the temple so he he says in john chapter 2 destroy this temple and i'll raise it in three days well he was the people thought he was talking about the jerusalem temple but the the writer of the gospel says but he was talking about his own body he he was the temple i'll raise it in three days do you remember this discussion he has with the the woman at the well the samaritan woman now the samaritans worshipped elsewhere they didn't go to jerusalem and uh that was their background so she tries to get into an argument with uh, uh, with Jesus he says uh, She says well will, will the people, when the Messiah comes he's going to restore worship Will that be in Jerusalem or can it be in a, a, our tradition? It's this particular mountain a, and Jesus says no, actually God seeks the people who will worship him and She's expecting him to say and it's got to be in the temple because she's speaking to a Jewish guy but what he says is no actually he seeks the people who worship him in spirit and in truth. The the radical nature of that sort of passes us by, but what he was, he was undermining temple worship, worship centered just on the temple. He was saying what God's really seeking is a new people and location is not so important. What he's worshiping, he wants a people who worship him in spirit and in truth. What about the existing temple? Well, he says, well, doesn't matter really actually not one stone is going to be left upon another now to to a jew living at that time that that's massive heresy isn't it massive massive heresy what do you mean replacing the temple system He, he was always undermining it he claimed for example the ability to forgive sins son your sins are forgiven do you mean this guy's got to go to the priest he's got to be absolved his sin he's got to make appropriate sacrifice he's got to get a dove or a lamb according to his finance he's got he's got to go through the system but jesus just says no i forgive you your sins and as proof i've got authority to do that take up your bed and walk and it happens so he's undermining the temple system and they understand that because they're saying to him hey who can forgive sins Except God alone. What are you doing? You're replacing lamb and priest and temple. You can't do that. But he was—he was doing that. And that's exactly what he was doing. And and, and John later, in one uh, one John, he's amazed. I said, "Hey, we, we saw his glory. We saw the kavod. We saw the glory of God in a man, Jesus, the Son of God." It's 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 a it's a great thing it's a wonderful i'm excited sorry I, I, I don't know why i'm apologizing i am a preacher can't help myself so and jesus then at the end of his life of course he promises having been the temple filled with the spirit he said i do nothing except by the spirit of god and in uh, obedience and cooperation with my father he then promises to give them what he had i'm going away they're devastated of course but he says, "Now I'm going to send my spirit to you. Previously, to experience something of the spirit of God, you either had to be an incredibly special person, a king anointed by God, a rare thing, occasional people like David and Saul, as we saw earlier, the spirit of God empowered them for a task. But now he says, I'm, I'm going to send my spirit to you. And in John, he breathes on them. I don't know how he did it, really. He breathes on them. It's, it, it takes you right back to the genesis. He's creating, he's acting out the creation of a new people who will carry his presence with them. And he says to them, receive the spirit. It's a recreation story. He's making a new humanity, a new tribe of people, if you like, are being formed who will carry his presence. I'm going, he says, but I'm going to send one just like me to you. And he breathes on them. They're going to be his people, his temple on the earth. So I I find that really an exciting sort of concept to think about. And so, of course, on Pentecost, uh, those days after Easter, the death of Jesus to forgive us our sins, to take away all the consequences of the wrong things we've said and done and thought, and the church is born, they're there praying, and, and the Spirit of God comes fl- like flames from heaven. That's reminiscent, isn't it, of the temple opening and the flames that come down that, there at that time. And, and they're filled with the Spirit of God. And immediately, like the, the water out of the temple, they go out, it spills out from the house. They can't contain the presence of God. And people of God start hearing them exclaim the wonders of God in their own language. Because this... This outflowing, this temple is now going to all nations. It's for anyone from any nation. And the church is born as the spirit of God comes upon them. Rather than filling a building, although it did fill the building, and later on in Acts we get the building shaking again, he pours out his spirit and he deliberately says, on all flesh. Right from the beginning in Acts, although it's a Jewish city, a Jewish festival, there are people from all these different tribes and tongues and other nations there and he pours out his spirit on all that not just the odd person a special person but actually everybody's special men women boys girls young old they can all be filled with the spirit of god and be part of his temple i don't know if that excites you it really excites me it's challenging as well It, it it ups my identity and calling but it also means I must consecrate myself. I want to be irresistible to his Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, I'm not very legalistic. I was brought up that way and I'm allergic to it. I'm not very legalistic, I'm the opposite, I'm anti-legalistic. But but the the thought of sanctifying myself, separating myself so that the Holy Spirit can flow through me to others, that's an exciting and challenging idea. So Paul and and other New Testament writers pick that language up. So Paul to the Corinthians, remember, he says, hey, don't you know, he's kind of saying you ought to know. really. Don't you know your bodies individually are temples of the Holy Spirit? I mean, that's an awesome privilege, isn't it? I wonder if we know that. It's a good question to ask yourself. Hey, do I know? Have I forgotten? That our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you. What a privilege. Whom you have received from God. And he, he applies that. I mean, he's really gritty in his application. Really gritty. He, he basically says, hey, you, you can't sleep with prostitutes. What you do, you involve the Spirit of God with. Do you want to grieve him? Do you want him to withdraw his influence? You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. So what you do, what you involve your physical body with really, really matters. That's that's I mean, that's a bit heavy, but that's that's how Paul uses this doctrine. It's not floating up in the air. It's hey, how you behave matters, how you live matters. He says it individually, and, and he also says it corporately in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, We together are the temple of God. So how we behave corporately. how how we respond and are hospitable to the presence of God in our lives really matters because we as a church, a local church, an international church, whatever, how we behave matters. He says it two or three times, three, four times in Corinthians. Don't you know that you are God's temple, God's spirit lives among you. In other words, how we relate to one another also matters because corporately together, We are a temple of the Spirit. Therefore, he says 2 Corinthians 6.16, therefore, come out and be separate. Paul's got, doesn't have any expectation that the world is going to get holy. (laughs) But he does have an expectation that we have a calling to separate ourselves from that which is unclean. Uh, Peter says something similar. You're being built into a spiritual house, a house of the Spirit. And you're a holy priest, you're the temple, but you're also the priesthood. You must offer acceptable sacrifices to God. So you see that that concept, which was a physical thing, began in Eden, God's presence with them, became a physical thing centered on tabernacle and temple. Now it's a huge international concept. Uh, I, I my favorite, I don't know if you're allowed a favorite book in the New Testament, but mine is Confession Possibly of Sin. Mine's Ephesians, I love Ephesians. And um, when Paul pictures the church, he, he actually invents a compound Greek word in Ephesians two nineteen to 22. He says God is, and he puts three Greek words together, God is gathering and joining and upbuilding people into a temple of his spirit. That's a great picture, isn't it? I mean, you just think it's a boring church meeting. But no, it's not, or it's, oh, my denomination again, my, my church family, whatever it is. But no, actually, God is at work in his church. What's he doing? It's a building site, compound Greek word. He's gathering, just like on a building site, gathering resources again. He's joining. He's putting this thing together. Why? To be a temple in which God lives by his spirit. So I, I don't know about you, sometimes I have to guard my heart from cynicism from merely denominational thinking, what, why do we try and start another church? What are we doing that for? Well, because that's what God's doing. He's gathering more people. He's building them together. Not just, he's not just constructing one denomination or one movement. No, he's building an international, multi-generational gathering of his people. Why? So that he can express his life in them and through them. A dwelling of his spirit. So that's a high view of church. We we live in days that are very cynical about church. Let's not be cynical. Brothers and sisters, let's say this is God's building project. I know things go wrong. I know some of us will be carrying hurts and all the rest of the stuff. I, I I could be exactly the same. But but actually uh, we're involved in something that God loves. His church is his temple, a dwelling place for his spirit. And if we fast forward to the end in Revelation chapter 1, we see that uh, God's dwelling uh, is now fully and directly and completely with his people. I can't wait. So Revelation 21 verse 3, he says, look, God's dwelling is now among the people. You know, there are days where you long for that, aren't you? When you get, I don't know, I've got to the age where I can't get in or out of a chair without going, oh, so that's just, <laughs> I can't wait for a new body. I, I, I look at the news and, uh, you know, sometimes I, it makes you weep. It fills your prayer as well. But I can't wait for that time when God is fully amongst his people and the old order is passed away. Meaning there's no longer any mourning or death or crying. And Creation is so, uh, verse 22 of Revelation 21 says, there's no physical temple in the new heaven and earth all picture language but what he's saying is, is you don't have to go to a place to meet with God because God will then be fully manifestly filling the earth with his glory and the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it interestingly ethnicity continues to the glory of God even in the new heaven and earth and just as in Eden it's described in Revelation 22 in terms of a river of life and trees and all the nations being healed so that's that's a pretty quick um, survey but what I, I'd love us to do is just to get into our groups and and just talk again about now what, what struck us what what struck us about this and, and secondly i'd love I'd love to ask how how do we honor the presence of God having done this survey have we underestimated the wonder of god being in his church do we underplay that or do we simplify it how how big a concept is this how can this help us worship so i'm sorry i'm asking compound questions but what really strikes us about the presence of god what excites us that's a good question what excites you about this teaching about the temple and the presence of god and and perhaps on the other hand what challenges you that's a chip. Easier way of asking the question What excites us about this teaching about the presence of God and us being His temple, and what's challenging about it? Thank you so much. Thanks, Andy. I'm just having a sip of a brew, which is good. Um, someone asked about um, books. Uh, uh, I first came across the idea of um, the promise of the temple through scripture from a book by David Devonish. It's not primarily about the temple theme. It's about, um, it's called Fathering Leaders, Motivating Mission by David uh, Devonish. It's actually uh, a book about the role of apostolic ministry in the world today, but for those who are interested in that kind of thing, that's where I first came across the idea. Um, an excellent book that would go alongside um, School of Theology very well is Unlocking the Bible. Probably been mentioned before by David Paulson. It's really very helpful um, sort of overview of each book of the Bible. You won't don't have to agree with everything. The one drawback is it doesn't have any references. So um, I've used it a lot for various things but you still have to do, if you want references, you still have to do the book. Abs- absolutely ideal thing to do is actually to read the Bible. So I know some of us are more keen on reading books about the Bible on the Bible, but the best thing to do to, disco- to discover Sam- Samuel is just read Samuel over and over again, and so on. So, but anyway, it's a very good book, as is um, Storylines. Again, it's an overview. I think it's a superb book by Andy Croft and Mike P- uh, Pilavachi, uh, a map to understanding the Bible. So he goes through what Scripture's about and uses some of the main themes, one of which is Temple, a very excellent um, section on the Temple. And the next bit of what I say is, is totally ripped off from, um, from these guys. So just uh, give full acknowledgement. Um, it's a very good book and um, it's not too long as well. So there we go. Uh, written in a popular style, easy to approach. Storylines, your map to understanding the Bible. Andy Croft and Mike Pilavachi. And that's still in print. Published by David C. Cook. Good. That's enough of, enough of that. I don't get any commission, so we'll stop. Stop there. Um, uh, somebody asked the question about um conscience. Conscience is an interesting thing because we all we all have a conscience, Christian and non-Christian, but the Bible talks about how we can sear or blunten or sort of burn off the nerve endings of our conscience. So if we keep going against our conscience, we get um we get insensitive. And uh obviously our society is getting increasingly insensitive to conscience uh, as we've turned our backs on God and you get the kind of Romans 1 decline of uh, godlessness leading inevitably to all sorts of wickedness. Uh, but a Christian has a conscience but he also has the Holy Spirit and obviously his spirit in us can awaken our conscience and just speak, speak to us. Um, you know the prophets talked about you'll hear a voice behind you say, saying this is the way. Or this isn't the way uh so so i think we can in our lives be um develop our relationship with the holy spirit the new testament talks about the fellowship of the holy spirit a genuine friendship whereby god leads us yes through his word but also by his spirit you know that feeling you get i'm just not i'm not a peace. Um, and, and the Bible talks, again, different language, but talks about letting the peace of God referee us. Now, some people are just ultra-sensitive to everything, and uh, they're always, shall I do it, shall I do it? So, so it takes a bit of discerning, doesn't it? But uh, I, I would say, generally, I've learned not to ask people to go against their conscience as a, as a pastor. So if people feel, no, I can't in all conscience do that, I, I, I wouldn't go against that, unless it's a clear biblical thing a mandated biblical thing i would say okay you you be free in your conscience what you can pray for what you don't feel able to pray for um whether you feel permitted and paul paul is interesting in paul's ethics he's really clear about sin but he's very freeing about culture and what people feel so do do we eat do we eat food that's been offered to idols don't we he's very uh, cultural issues about head covering what days are special what days aren't special special he's actually very he basically says don't do it if it offends your conscience don't do it if it offends someone else be considerate but don't make a big deal of disputable matters matters be at peace but then when it comes to things that are wrong clear scriptural rights and wrongs he's really straight So, so I think that's the, I don't know if that really answers the question. So I would say if you have a conscience that says I shouldn't do this, then don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. Don't go against your conscience, which might be the Holy Spirit might be an oversensitive conscience, but don't go against your conscience. Um, but don't judge other people. If they have a different view of watching Harry Potter, drinking beer, what you do or don't do on a Sunday, whatever, there's a whole multitude of things, uh, because Paul says, hey, these are disputable matters, but it's a waste of time to dispute them. <laughs> so, so on clear scriptural things, let's be clear, let's not offend our conscience, let's give other people the dignity of following their conscience. Uh, so I have people that won't, when I go to Africa, I don't touch alcohol, not because I think alcohol's wrong, did a, if you look at all the Bible verses about wine, it's about 50 50, positive and negative. Uh, but because I honor those guys, they live in that I respect them and their cultural rules. So I don't touch it. I can't wait to get on the plane and have a beer, but I don't touch it. <laughs> See, so, that, so that's how we handle conscience and other people's consciences as well. So I don't know if that really answers the question. But anyway, back to the notes just briefly. I want to just apply this um presence of god's teaching if i'm if i may and as i say i've I've stolen most of it from other people so no credit to me um so lots of applications worship now obviously at the moment we're we're a bit restricted i'm i'm a sunday animal i'm really missing gathering together i can't wait to get with a crowd of other people and and worship god but it's not going to happen quite like that at the moment but you know when we worship whether we're on our own or in a small group or, or corporately all together or we're doing it on Zoom or Facebook or whatever uh, method you're using, let's remember we're gathering into the presence of God. Now, you may still be in your slippers or your nighty, and you may be drinking a cup of coffee and still eating toast, but, but we're still gathering to the presence of God, and so there's a sense of wonder in that and a sense of determination that we're, let's, let's not be satisfied with just the singing of songs. The singing of songs are a vehicle. That's, that's all, that's all we are. So, so we're not enamored just with the vehicle, but we're fascinated by God, his person and his presence. There's something to expect, to seek after, uh, to experience and to enjoy when we come to worship. So let's not reduce worship to mere liturgy, though liturgy can be full of meaning. But those things are just a vehicle. I don't know what churches we represent, but whether we're charismatic or lighting candles, whether we're Eucharistic, whatever we are, when we come to worship, we're coming into the presence of God. So let's enjoy and we do that with a sense of awe and wonder, whatever style and however we express that will differ. But let's let's seek his face and know his presence. Like David did. One thing I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon his beauty. So it affects worship. I think it affects our our identity. There's a sort of dignity, confidence issue in this. This is, folks, this is who we are. In the world, we're we're not any great sheikhs, we're just ordinary average people, but this is who we are. We're the temple. Of the living God this is what we've been created and born again for so let's not drift in identity there's a certain confidence that we are the church the temple of God whether we're gathered or scattered uh, we are where people can meet God that's a challenging thought isn't it you are where people can meet God people meet God because he's he's in you you can you can let that out and introduce them to him or not but we're the people of God so um, Crofton uh, Pivlaci say, Christians today are not generally better looking, funnier, better dressed or smarter than non-Christians. God's presence and God's presence alone distinguishes us. So there's dignity in that. There's uh, a sense of confidence and identity through who we are in him by his mercy. There's also expectation, surely. Anything could happen. Why? Because, well, because God's spirit is in us. His presence is there. Now, this is not a teaching on the, the, the Holy Spirit and his, his gifts, but his presence is with us. And there's power in that presence. Potentially anything could happen, not because we're special, not because we've done a course or we're super spiritual. We can leap over tall problems in a single bound and all of that, but simply because God is with us. There's a confidence that comes to someone like David, not because he's any great shakes, but because God is with us and he's not with others. So there's an expectation that can come with that. Uh, I particularly, because I love going to other countries, I, I love the fact, the diversity of God's temple. His spirit is on all flesh and he's gathering a spectacular international people and increasingly so that all nations will will stream to it. So I personally love that. Let's not stay distant from, and that's particularly relevant perhaps at this time uh, with the dreadful happenings in in the States. But racism is alive and well in planet UK as well. Let's be people who say, hey, God's people are diverse and we can enjoy his presence. I love going to nations where I don't understand, as in Pakistan a while back, the only words I understood were hallelujah and Coca-Cola. And yet his spirit was present and you can join him in, in the worship as best you can and just enjoy his diversity. Let's celebrate. He's building an international rainbow people, uh, people where his grace is expressed in multiple, multiple ways. So enjoy the ride of diversity, holiness. Paul makes that application, doesn't he? Hey, don't you know you're a temple? I was talking to him. Um, Pentecostal uh, leader recently and uh, his church has grown massively, he's planting churches in the West Midlands and other places and he's got a big stress on holiness and from my background uh, when we stressed holiness it tended to be legalistic, it tended to be a long list of mostly don'ts, very few do's but a lot of don'ts and uh, uh, to be honest I, as a young guy I didn't find it attractive um, at all and I said, how, how do you in your church, that's growing so well, God's with you. How, how do you teach on holiness with, but you're not legalistic at all. You're filled with joy and fun. And, and, and he said this, he said, I, I teach my people, why don't you become irresistible to the Holy Spirit? And I thought, I thought it was a wonderful thing. Let's not do anything that grieves the Spirit. The very opposite. Let's live our lives in such a way that, that he works through us with increasing freedom being irresistible so it's just a phrase that stayed with me so i'll i'll pass it on to you free of charge don't we know we're a temple i think often we just forget uh a couple more and then i'll finish um what i've called apostolic mission but mission however you describe that mission and church planting the biblical reason to plant churches everywhere is that he wants expressions of his presence everywhere. He wants to multiply disciples who carry him to the ends of the earth. So when we plant a church, we're not just making the Baptists more numerous, or the Assemblies of God, or New Frontiers, or Catholics, wherever, wherever we all come from. We're, we're we're not we're not making boosting our particular make or brand of Christianity. We're building a, a temples of the Spirit, Spirit filled communities to express. Who he is to the ends of the earth. That's the big story that we're all part of. So our vision is not denominational upbuilding and competition, but to see expressions of his temple throughout the earth in expectation that one day the earth will be filled with his glory. So that's the very big picture that you and I are just a tiny have the privilege of being a tiny part of. Uh, and then I guess lastly you've got to finish with our destiny that that one day we'll be with him and we'll see the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the foundation of the world. And we'll be there dancing before the throne. And uh, my, my honest hopeful expectation is that since we'll be there forever, I'll be able to learn to dance like an African.